Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Institute for Energy Law's annual Oil and Gas Conference. Some of the discussion will focus on issues facing the oil and gas industry specifically, but we think all our listeners will learn something of value. We also want to give a special thanks to the Institute for Energy Law for hosting us. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current events and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. Today, we're lucky to have as our guest, Curtis Frazier, who has spent his life in the oil industry working in a variety of capacities uh, with Shell. And we're recording this as part of our special series here at the Institute of Energy Laws 2020 meeting. Uh, IEL. Uh, Curtis, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, we talked a little bit about before we started about your time at Shell. I know you've had several different roles. Just hit the tops of the waves for us. Tell us a little bit about your experience. There. Well, I, yeah, okay. It's, uh, it makes me tired to think of it sometimes. But I, uh, <laughs> I started with Shell right out of law school, got recruited on campus, uh, got my offer in December. Oil was very high and on its way up even further. Uh, by the time I arrived uh, to report for work, uh, oil was like $7 a barrel and everyone was shutting down and uh, I was just kind of amazed that I was still going to have a position at that point. Uh, so I came in in a classic bust uh, of the, uh, Houston had been a boom town when I interviewed. There were cranes all over, empty holes in the ground, all these buildings downtown were in the process of being built. Came in, the metabolism was completely stopped. but stayed around, um, kind of thought I'd work for a very short time for an oil company, and then I would take my experience somewhere else and make a lot more money and have a much more interesting job than working in a corporation uh, for a long term. Uh, but 30-plus uh, years later, I was uh, I retired as general counsel for Shell with a lot of adventures <laughs> in between living in different countries and running businesses and having wow. a lot of fun. So. Yeah. Well, and I think it's because of that that remarkable tenure and mm. seeing those cycles that I thought it might be interesting to our listeners to talk a little bit about where, you know, the oil and gas industry has been and mm. maybe where it's going, particularly yeah. for people that may be new to the industry, thinking about joining the industry, because um, it is somewhat cyclical. Yeah. So l let's start with maybe where, where you think we are now. How, how would you describe the current environment? Well, I think it's a very active environment for the business. If you're looking at production, production volumes and, and the activity, if you drive through the oil patch trying to get from one place to another on roads that are broken by heavy oil field equipment trucks and facing that traffic, you think, wow, there's there's a huge amount of activity going on in the business. The, you know, we're under price pressures now. And people, my experience in the industry has been that people quickly recalibrate uh, their appetite for anything based on price. And, and people have this very short-term view of price. We have this kind of forecasting mentality where we think, what's the price today is probably close to what the price is going to be tomorrow, uh, relatively speaking. It may be slightly higher, slightly lower, but everyone thinks that it's going to be kind of steady state. When the times are bad, especially big companies batten down the hatches and start preparing for a long-term future of low prices, which never really happens. Right. And then when times are good, people are prepared to do all kinds of things that they would never do in you know, more modest times because they believe that that forecast is going to go up continuously. And you know, they're 
it's an industry very good at numbers and you watch the numbers and you can project things into the next five or 10 years. And it always is completely overwhelmed by the past because even everyone knows that what happened in the past doesn't have any impact on the future necessarily. People, they can't mentally, they can't get over the fact that their recent past colors so much their view of the future that they end up on this forecast basis. So, you know, it usually takes a long time to start spending again after times have been bad because people still have this mental model. And then eventually people come out of that and now they're in the boom cycle and they think that that's actually going to happen a long time because the world has changed. They think well, it's different. It's different <laughs> right. now. And it's going to be different. It's different. different. We've never Everything's been here different. before. Right? So How many of, times have we heard that? One, yeah. of, one of the uh, interesting things I got to do at, uh, at Shell when I was living in London was to participate in... Uh, Shell hates forecasts um, because they're always wrong. Every forecast is always wrong, and <laughs> uh, and you just have to live with that. So they don't like forecasts. They don't want to say, well, oils. They they, use, they have a price premise to to test their investment, but they work on scenario developments, and they think, well, the world is going to change. Uh, it's, the world could be one way ten years from now, or twenty years from now, or thirty years from now. Or it could be another way, and they spend an enormous amount of time and money exploring what those worlds might look like. And then they test their investments against those two worlds, and they don't try to say, well, now we think oil is going to be $17 forever, or it's going to be $30 forever. Or now we've, we've crossed over, and natural gas is we're running out of natural gas in the United States, so we're going to count on gas being $12 in the U.S., uh, uh, because they create these other scenarios and they say, well, it could be that or it could be $1.80. So they try to invest in one that makes money in both worlds if you can. Um, so it, you know, different companies use different methodology and still can't quite get over the mental hurdle of tomorrow's going to look an awful lot like today. And so yeah. it's, it's just I think a, that's fascinating. And a lot of this is some of the psychology yeah. of it. Um, and I do think that's I do think that's true. We're certainly mm -hmm. influenced by history. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I still remember vividly, you know, living through the 70s and the oil embargo and rationing by license plates yeah. and telling my parents, I don't need a college fund. Just put a tank in the ground and fill it with gasoline. <laughs> yeah, this was as a this was as a teenager. <laughs> right. And I said, just give me a thousand gallons of gasoline by the time I go to school, you know, way in the future in 1980. Yeah. Um, and it'll be worth a fortune. Yeah. And obviously that would not have been a great college yeah. savings <laughs> plan. But I was convinced at the time, you know, and everyone's going to run out of oil. Yeah. And by the year 2000, you know, and obviously those projections so crazy yeah. off. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't think anyone projected no. where we'd be here at 2020, right? No. With uh, either the yeah. price of oil or the consumption numbers. I mean, it's really hard to, it, to it predict. Is a, it's a business that I think rewards staying power and staying. Uh, we had a chairman who loved to use the term middle of the river or middle of the road. If you just have the uh, and, and in our view, Exxon was very good at not being overwhelmed by short-term views. They never get too crazy about, oh, I'm gonna, we're going to double down in this or we're going to get out of that. It was just keep marching forward. And invariably, the cycles come through and, and swing back. And it becomes, having done nothing, becomes a very smart move sometimes. So it's, uh, it's an interesting world. But we, we would get caught up in... in uh, the idea, I had a, a client early on in my career who, who said uh, natural gas is worth about $1.80, period. Hmm. And no matter what anybody tells you, sometimes it might be worth, uh, you know, on a cold day in, in February, uh, it might be worth $100 in New York City. But 
it's really worth a dollar eighty, maybe two dollars. Then when when we were running out, of, you know, we ran out of gas in this country once right. a long time ago, and then we found boatloads of gas and we had a gas bubble, and it took us forever to work off the gas bubble. And then and then it was like now we're going to have to build LNG terminals and bring natural gas into the United States, and if we kind of people rush in and fill the gap. If there's no if there if you're running out of gas. Just wait, because somebody's going to go find a way to produce gas. Yeah. Liz Klingensmith yeah. is also joining us. He's our partner here in Houston. Liz, you want to add something? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, even though I have not been involved in the industry nearly as mm. long as you have, I've always been struck by the fact that whenever there is a missing piece, there seems to be this amazing ability to innovate quickly to fill that gap, whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's... yeah. Yeah, when I, you know, when I joined Shell, we had uh, discovered oil uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and water that was too deep to possibly ever, it could never be produced. It was never going to be produced. And, and people said, well, why would you even drill a well out in water that's so deep you can't build a platform out there and there's no way to produce that oil? And you know what they did? They found a bunch of oil and what they figured out a way to, to build. And they innovated and built something that became like the engineering marvel of the year uh, by building a platform that came in three sections and had to be dropped on uh, you know, each section on top of one another. And, and it was in like 900 feet of water. Uh, and, and then someone built a barge that was large enough to put the whole platform on and they moved out in deeper water. And then they, then they said, well, why, why, what if you just tethered the platform to the seabed? Uh, and what if, and in these, you know, the technology mm-hmm. has always rushed in when people said, this is not possible. I remember in 1995, um, I was actually in the trading business in Shell, but because of my legal background, I had uh, some energy lawyers and a, a private law firm that won't be named who had me come in and talk to their partners uh, because they were going to close down their energy practice because oil in the United States was going away and there was just not going to be enough work for upstream lawyers and they didn't need really any energy lawyers in the firm and they were going to wind down and basically these, these partners were going to have to go somewhere else which they they ultimately did wow. uh, but you know they thought in 95 that the basically the oil business in the United States was going away it would all be imported oil natural gas was eventually going to go away uh, there was nowhere else people said there's no more easy oil to find in the united states which was kind of true and then technology said hey we have a solution right yeah yeah no i do think it's remarkable so i mean and i guess given that history of right you get mm-hmm. the naysayers or it's over in 95 yeah. <laughs> obviously that group you know maybe wishes they kept an energy <laughs> practice <laughs> they probably have one now. <laughs> and they have restarted one and, and now they're thinking what did we do that for exactly. and, and then five years from now they'll yeah right so given so given that experience having kind of seen that uh, just wait yeah. it, that someone will figure out if there's money to be made, mm-hmm. someone will figure out a way to make it. Yeah. Um, uh, True statement. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of how we were built as an economy. Yeah. Absolutely. And so given that and, and your role in the legal aspect mm-hmm. of the industry, what have you learned that you would you know, tell other GCs and other um, in-house counsel about being prepared for the legal implications of that? Wow. Um, interesting question. I, I think you have to be nimble, but you have to avoid irrational exuberance at the same time. Um, things will come up and you're going to need 
uh, a lot of work to be done in a very new area that is outside your comfort zone and outside your expertise, which is a perfect time to bring in outside counsel, frankly. Uh, and, and your business is trying to figure out a new way to do business. But I would hesitate to, uh, and one of the reasons it's a great time to bring in outside counsel is because you don't really know if, it's, if there's going to be any staying power behind this new thing. In 1996, I uh, led a team in Shell trying to figure out uh, how to replicate Enron because Enron had invented a new economy. And uh, we couldn't buy Enron because we couldn't figure out how we could pay the market price mm-hmm. for them and, and for what they could actually do or had. So we said, well, you know, if you can't buy them, then just, you know, build your own. So we, we bought a pipeline company and we put it together with a, a business I was leading at the time. And we kind of started building our own uh, Enron. And it was uh, suddenly we're into stuff that we were never into before. And we, one of the reasons we bought the other company was to bring in their culture and their uh, entrepreneurial approach to things. Then a few years later, uh, that was all over. It turned out that the, the new economy that Enron invented you know, didn't really exist. And so we still do the business that we built then. It's, it's Shell Gas and Power Trading is a very busy, big trading company and, and does makes a lot of money, does a lot of great work, uh, but it doesn't do it the same way that Enron did it, obviously. So you have to react to new things that come in and and be ready to go for it. We, we built regulated gas pipelines. We said we would never build regulated pipelines because there was, you know, it was a utility rate of return, literally. Uh, we could make a lot more money drilling for oil than we could owning a pipeline. Why would we ever own a regulated pipeline? One thing to build your own equity oil pipeline. Um, and then we built three interstate gas pipelines in the Gulf of Mexico, and we were in the interstate gas pipeline business. And uh, suddenly we had a whole new legal set of challenges to deal with. And then we sold them because huh. we built it. Well, we, you know, in any asset, one of the things that, you know, there's a truism in any business, but particularly the oil businesses. Um, and I think someone has said it here this week, maybe it was even Lynn last night, it would, don't fall in love with your assets because, you know, whether it's, you know, you built a platform and you named it after your dog or you've, or you've, <laughs> you've got a pipeline company named after your daughter or you've got a, you know, what, whatever, you, you know, you're going you're gonna to sell those things. Everything gets sold. And so mm-hmm. you, you get into interstate regulated pipelines, you get out of interstate regulated pipelines, you get into kind of unique structured transactions around trading assets and you get out of those things and, and you, but, but the core business stays in the middle of the river and you, you know, you, you've got the, all of the things that make your business operate. And for Shell and, and lots of big businesses, I went to Shell to be, do oil and gas law specifically. And uh, for the first five years, I didn't do any oil and gas law because it turns out Shell was a huge business. And we had, I did aviation law and communications law and bankruptcy law and secured transactions, creditors. You know, I did, I did all this transactional work, piles and piles of kind of low reward, low risk contracts for young lawyers to cut their teeth on. Uh, just, you know, thinking, wh- wh- how did this happen to me? How did I end up in a place where, <laughs> I, where, where, where I'm not know? doing anything but, what I thought I'd be doing? And, yeah. and that stuff all has to keep going on, no matter what the price of oil is. So, so it sounds like the big takeaway is avoid being dismissive 
of new things, but never lose your, never lose your skepticism. Yeah, that, well, that's that's well said. You have to react to these new things because you know they some of them happen. You know you have to you know fracking I think works. So there's you know here's this whole new thing that nobody really did, uh, and and now there's it, it's there. So you've got and you got to be prepared and nimble to work. I and mean, if your client wants to. You know, get into LNG import terminals, then you've got to get into it with your whole heart. But, but uh, if you're if you're running a legal organization, you've got to you know remember that you've got to keep the machine running too. Mm. So. I'm I'm a little reluctant to ask, given our discussion of forecasting and how impossible it is. But I am interested <laughs> in your sense with the historical background and the kind mm -hmm. of mental clarity of not assumption. Mm -hmm. You know, where do you see things maybe going in the next? What Five is, years, ten years, whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah what does level. your crystal ball yeah. say? <laughs> I mean, do you, knowing that they're often yeah. wrong, you, you're in a well, kind of unique position to try to say, you know, I've seen a lot, and this is where this is where we may be heading. Well, to me, I spend a lot of time looking at the great big picture, and I I talk to people a lot about energy and and sustainability, and uh, I, I find that people, first of all, have a hard time understanding the numbers. Uh, the numbers in this industry are ginormous. They're so big, people can't even understand them. Mm. And, and when you talk about, um, when people say, I, I think we should just use solar and wind energy and get off of hydrocarbons. Right. I've, and I've and I, I immediately say, well, well if we're going to get off hydrocarbons, instead of just going cold turkey off hydrocarbons, what if we just backed out coal and replaced it with natural gas? That would be a great transition fuel. No. Hydrocarbons are all bad. Not going to be tricked into using more hydrocarbons. No, no natural gas. And, and then you say, what, do you have any idea how much natural gas we use every day in the United States? And if you tell them, it's just a big number. So if you take a cubic foot, everybody can picture what a cubic foot is. If you had a glass box that was one foot, 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches, and filled with natural gas, then you could build a, a stack of these boxes that went to the moon and you'd still have natural gas left over. And then you could come back to Earth uh, with another stack and you'd still have gas left over and you could go back and back down and back up and back down and back up and back down and back up and back down and back up. And, and yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the- I've never heard that. It's, it's enormous volume. We, people have no clue how much of this stuff we use. And, and another uh, thing that people lose sight of because we live in these beautiful big cities and our neighbors are driving uh, the Prius, and we own our Tesla, and we, and you think, well, the world's really coming down in transportation, hydrocarbon-fueled uh, vehicles, uh, but there are a growing number of plug-in electrics, and, and that's good, and we need as much as we can, uh, but there were 90 million gas-burning cars manufactured this year, and they're going to be around for an average of 12 to 15 years. So you're not going to turn off hydrocarbons for transportation anytime soon. And, and then, you know, on top of that, uh, we have many billion people on this planet and that not very many of them look like we look. And there are people, there are about a billion people who don't have any electricity at all. They don't have one light bulb. Much, they don't have to worry about where to plug in their iPhone. They don't need to recharge their Tesla. Or they, they just want a light bulb at night. Or they want to cook on a stove that is not putting out fumes from burning animal dung that's actually killing their children. That, that, that's what they want. And, and that's delivered by energy. If you see a graph of energy intensity of a society and you put that along with physical and mental well-being and economic production, they all go at the exact same angle. 
So if you want to raise people up out of a, a world of desperate poverty, and what, that is not only economic poverty, but a, a poverty of well-being, you're going to have to increase the energy intensity of those people. And you know, it's, it's not going to happen by replacing hydrocarbons overnight. So, so long way to answer your question. I think the world's going to be using hydrocarbons for quite a long time, and it's a diminishing resource in terms of you know your wells, especially these new horizontal wells. So you got to keep drilling. Uh, you can't stop drilling and just say you know when these wells peter out, then we'll we be weaned off of hydrocarbons. A huge amount of activity required to to. It's the moral thing to do. You know, it's it's yeah. The the, the planet's under stress. We've got to deal with that. But we've got over a billion people on the planet who, who need more energy, not less energy. And to say, let's all just get along with how much energy we're using today is to sentence a billion people to a life of ill health and, and economic poverty. And that's just that's not the right thing to do. It may look like the right thing in your neighborhood, but on a global standpoint, it's not the right thing to do. So the business is always going to be there. It's going to be there for quite a long time. The peak demand is going to be out there a long ways because there are people who haven't even started to use hydrocarbons that are going to need hydrocarbons. So this is going to continue. And, and right now it, it, it feels bad, but it, my prediction is we come out of this one again and then we'll bust again and we'll come out of that one and then we'll bust again. Then it, it'll continue forward. And I believe in, in the miracle of technology. So, you know, in, in, our, in our world, we have kind of two different sets of people. One are, there's a book out called, oh gosh, what, now I'm going to not be able to remember what the name of this book is. Uh, it, it, the, the bottom line is it it's, takes the approach that people addressing these big global issues around things like overpopulation and, and food production and, and environmental health, um, uh, are either you know like prophets who do forecasts and say you know like in 1970 uh, it was all the scientists agreed that right. we could not feed the number of people on the planet that now live on the planet and I get fed that. yes so yes. and and what happened well people made technological breakthroughs and now there's robust plants uh, that uh, can grow and produce food in quantities that we, we couldn't foresee by looking at the chart yes. uh, because things happened. And, and uh, you know, between all that technological breakthrough changes the landscape every time. So whenever you think you've looked at a line and you think that's going to go up to where it's so expensive, it's going to be crazy, or it's going down so low that everything is going to go bankrupt, then it's probably not going to be either one of those things. Somewhere in between, the market will either capitalize on the low price and it'll create demand or someone will say if it's that expensive i'm going to figure out a way to do it and and then gas will go back to two dollars and you won't yeah. need an import terminal yeah dollar eighty yeah <laughs> I, I, right i think that's no I, I think there's so much truth to that yeah. and i do think I, you see these doom and gloom projections about overpopulation or we won't feed people or the world's gonna you know and and we find ways to address those. Yeah. And it makes me, well, I've wondered, you know, will we find a solution to climate change? I do think, in, you know, I this, think we will. this is a major and it threat. And won't, it won't be even one we, we recognize. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, when salt was so valuable because you had to have it to preserve food, that people thought, well, there's got to be a better way to salt or something. No, it was like refrigeration. Bingo. Game changer. Had nothing to do with the current technology. The new technology was completely unrelated, but solved the problem. So, it's going to be it's going to be the same thing. I was at a I'm on the board of the uh, Julianne Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability, and uh, we were listening to some technological breakthroughs about carbon capture that aren't 
taking it from a stream and then pushing it down into a reservoir somewhere. That, that's a very blunt instrument. It works, very expensive. No one will pay for it because uh, we don't price carbon. But And then there was the other technologies being presented that were proprietary and I, I won't talk about, but they're completely different ways to just capture carbon dioxide out of the air in just ambient structures. So I think it's going to be something that we could never even imagine. Hmm. By the way, it was The Prophet and the Wizard, I think, is the name okay. of the book. And so the wizards, yeah. the wizards are people who say, uh, if, if people think the line's going like that, then there's going to be a lot of money in you know, solving that. So it's, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I believe that technology, that, you know, the, the scary thing is, there, you know, when does it reach the tipping point, though? If you're always having to come through with a technological way to survive for the planet to live, then you, you know, at some point you think, what happens when the new technology turns out to have some diabolical, unforeseen consequence that it's irrecoverable. Right. <laughs> I'll be gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm also counting on technology to make me live forever because mm. I'm well, hoping that's... for cloned replacement parts. And right. uh, you know, that, that is the other problem and, that there's a lot of money in. Yep. If you can get that eternal yeah. life, there's, there's money there. But. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back to work, though, if that happens. <laughs> my, right. my retirement plan does not foresee a, a life that goes on forever. Perpetuity, yeah, not going to last forever. Yep. I'm curious as to your view, and, I, and there may be political implications. You mentioned we don't price carbon, and yeah. I know there's been a lot of discussion about carbon tax. If I, someone in the industry, you know, I'm interested, do you have yeah. thoughts on, you know, whether we need to have either Carbon yeah. credits, carbon tax, something like that. You've, you've just spent a lot of time. Well, I'm a, I, since, since I was in and ran trading businesses for a few years, and um, I love cap and trade as a way to, to manage this thing. I think it speaks to the basic self-interest that makes capitalism work. And it's been usually successful when applied to other places. Mm -hmm. the, and and uh, I, I talked to people in Washington about it a long, long time ago. Uh, you know, there was the Climate Action Partnership where a whole bunch of companies came together and said, we need to have cap and trade. And, uh, you know, people who were against it was because somebody was going to make money off this thing. And they didn't want some, you know, speculator, trader types making a whole bunch of money off this environmental thing. And, and then the other side said, well, we don't want to tax because we don't do tax. You know, our party does not right. say that word. Right. Right. So, yeah. so, so don't say that word in this office and don't, don't say trading and don't say tax. And, and you think, well, you know, this is crazy. It doesn't have anything to do with the substance of what needs to be done. But, you know, uh, you know I, I had the pleasure of working in a company that very early on uh, said that we had to address carbon and, and the way to do it would be to price it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay. so I'm, I'm, you know, what, what is this new, uh, like, uh, tax and dividend or whatever, or tax and, you know, the, the, whatever, whatever you have to dress it, you put it, lipstick but. on it somehow. But, <laughs> but I, I, I think, uh, I, I think that would be a very effective way to, right. to, I mean, it's to a start way to, to get manage the capital, the, the capital markets yep. and the whole yep. market thing. Yep. If you create that market, yeah. the, the same yeah. incentives yeah. we've been talking about. Yeah. Who's, who's going to, who's the, the entrepreneur out there who's going to like solve the, I mean, at least with the price of oil going up to a thousand dollars a barrel, the, the wizard who's going to solve that is the person who's going to make money off of getting in there and saying, well, if, if it goes above this, I can use this very expensive new formulation and, and I can be rich. Who's going to get rich capturing carbon? Right. Nobody. Nobody. And, and companies who, who are doing anything about it, are they're just investing as part of their license to operate. You know, people who spend their own corporate assets 
spend their shareholders' value to, to capture carbon. They're just doing it hoping to not be legislated out of business, but there is no profit in it. And I think until somebody can make a lot of money taking carbon out of the atmosphere, right. we, we will have you know shortchanged ourselves because that's the one way we've proven that we can actually address problems very quickly with innovation and technology. You just have to provide incentive right. to innovate. Yeah, there has to be an incentive, and there's no natural price for it, unlike oil, where somebody will pay right. to have it. Uh, if my neighbor came up to me and said, hey, I'm going to take a ton of carbon out of the air, how much will you give me for doing that? Uh, I'd say... I'm, Pat on the I'm, back. I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to give you any money for that. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, it's, uh, right. So, anyway. Okay. Yeah. No, that that's, makes, that that's makes my theory on climate. I think we'll solve the climate problem. Another thing we've always done, just as a species, unlike dinosaurs and others, is we know how to adapt to things. And it may be an ugly world. It may be a transitionary world, but I don't think it happens. I, th I think our, my grandchild will grow up in a world that, that has a whole lot of different moving parts than our world has. But I, I, don't, I don't believe that we will allow our species to go extinct because of not being able to address climate change. There is, a, you know, the science behind it, though, is pretty scary. If the permafrost start, you know, there, there is a tipping point in climate, and you, and you can't wait until, you know, the last minute and then, and then suddenly say, oh, we're going to incentivize people now to solve this. <laughs> right, it, it's, right, um, right. <laughs> the, 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 the policymakers need to be doing something right now so that people can work on their innovations. Yeah. No, I, it makes a lot of sense. Mm. That, that's terrific. Um, I know we're about out of time. Any, uh, and this has been a very engaging and enjoyable conversation, so I, I appreciate it. I think we've touched on a lot of, a lot of yeah. points. It'll and, be, any, it'll be any, interesting to see you actually distill this into something relevant because <laughs> I think this that's is, been a fun conversation. I think it's been a really interesting <laughs> conversation. I, I think there's always an appetite for thoughtful mm. stuff, and you've got such a good perspective mm. uh, to share. Mm. And I think it's been, it's been really valuable. So Always fun for me to talk. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. Mm. Um, so thank you again, Curtis, for joining us and My for pleasure. a really interesting uh, interesting discussion on the on the future thank you um, that brings us to the end of this show i do want to remind listeners you can find previous episodes of the in-house roundhouse and subscribe at our website wombobondickinson.com or on itunes google play store soundcloud or wherever you get your podcasts if you have questions or comments about this episode or suggestions for future topics and want to have more discussion about technology, the future, and uh, you know what's going to happen in the energy, connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.